It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Because I have a, a lot, a lot, a lot of material to cover tonight. So I hope y'all got y'all's Bibles out. Because we are going to re- be from um, reading people uh, tonight. Let's see here. Going to have a word of prayer. And then we are going to, um, we're going to start in the book of Matthew uh, chapter 1. And then uh, we're going to go back. We're going to go back into the Old Testament because we have a lot, a lot, a lot of material to cover tonight, and I'm so excited. Tonight we're going to go into uh, the birth of Jesus uh, because there is so much going on. It's not just the baby in the manger. Uh, what I told you guys two weeks ago, stuff going on as well uh, because uh, the Lord is so gracious. Um, before he sent his son, he sent somebody to prepare the way. So we can't talk about uh, the birth of Jesus without bringing in his cousin, okay, because the cousin was sent before him to prepare the people's hearts for the coming of the Messiah, okay? So let's just have a word of prayer, and then we'll go on into that. All right, dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be here tonight, God. As we study your word, please give us wisdom, clarity, knowledge, and understanding, God. We are just so excited about the birth of your son, uh, Jesus, because without him, Lord knows, we would just be dead, dead, dead in our sins and trespasses. So we are just so grateful, God, that you thought enough of us just to send us a Savior, God. God, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to teach your word. And uh, we ask this all in your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. So what I was talking about before was um, even though we're going to start in the book of Matthew, so go to Matthew chapter 1, um, there is a lot, a lot, a lot. When I say a lot, a lot of uh, ground. Okay, so we're going to start in the book of Matthew, chapter 1. There's really, um, uh, there's really only one thing that I need you to see. Um, because um, you got to remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by uh, four uh, different people. Three of them were Jewish. One of them, Luke, was a Gentile. Okay, now, the reason why we're going to go back and forth between Matthew and Luke, because Matthew is given a genealogy for his Jewish readers to show Christ's birth through 
his earthly father, Joseph. Now, we know that, um, you know, Jesus is the son of God, but back in them days, if you were, you know, married to the mother and the father, you know, he, you know, uh, so adopted him. Yes, that's his son. Yes, he would have all the rights and uh, privileges. But also through the mother, through the genealogy of the mother. Now, that's very important because a lot of prophecy in Old Testament talked about a virgin um, having a child, um, different things. So, you know, therefore, uh, Mary had to come into play too. And Mary too is of uh, uh, Jewish background and has a genealogy link. Okay, so in the beginning, what's going on is um, there is prophecy about to come to pass, all right? So the first prophecy that we have, if you go to, if you go to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, it's talking about all all, all, all of the genealogy starting, if you notice here, um, Abraham begat Isaac. So see, it starts at Abraham, okay? And it goes all the way up through Joseph, okay? The husband of Mary, that's verse 16, who was born Jesus, who is called Christ, okay? So the reason why he gives this genealogy again is because um, this is uh, um, the Jewish background of Jesus Christ, okay? Now, um, Luke does a good background, but he goes through the mother Mary, still a Jewish background because she is still a descendant of David, and we're ready to go there in a minute, but Matthew is talking about the descendants of Christ through uh, uh, Joseph. Then Luke is talking about the descendants through Mary, okay? So let's just get that out of the way. So Luke chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, I'm sorry, verses all the way down to 16, okay? Right there, all the way, that's a Jewish background through the father, Joseph, okay? And then um, uh, Luke gives the genealogy through Mary, okay? Now, these two are both descendants of David. Well, why is that important? Okay, so the first thing we want to do is go to Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, okay? So, Second Samuel, chapter 7, verse 1, okay? And what we're, what we're going to talk about is the Lord made a covenant with King David. Now, Jesus is that, the, the, you know, that covenant come to pass, but this was the original covenant that the Lord made with King David. Okay, so this is the original covenant the Lord made, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to start at verse 1, okay? Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, so we are talking about King David, okay? The king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. He's talking about God, be God, okay? And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. So now here's what's going on. David is sitting around the palace looking at all of his stuff. Like I got a big house. I got a big uh, uh, mansion. I got big everything. I'm well off. But the Lord is in a tent. Okay, I'm going to get there in a minute. Walk with me, walk with me. So David is looking around. He's seeing all the stuff he has. But then he looks around and says, but you know what? I'm in this big, fancy place, but the Lord is in a tent. I'm going to tell you why the Lord is in the tent in a minute. 
And he says to Nathan the prophet, you know what? I want to build the Lord a house. So the prophet tells uh, David, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? It's a question. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Israel, from Egypt, to this day. But I have been moving around in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So basically what he's telling Nathan the prophet is, listen, I understand David want to build me a house, but I haven't been in a house. I've been in a tent. They moved the tent from place to place, the children of Israel. When they came out of Egypt, the Lord told them to, you know, instructed Moses to build a tent. And it was set up very elaborate, which we're going to go into tonight. It's a lot of uh, um, uh, spots in the temple, but only one that the high priest can go in. So here's the thing. The Lord is like, listen, I've been traveling around with my people for all these years. Have I asked anybody else to build me a house? No, I have not. And if you know anything about biblical history, David ended up not doing it. It was Solomon that built the temple, okay? All right. He said, now, therefore, uh, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus said the Lord of hosts, uh, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people, verse 9. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time I appoint judges over my people Israel. So remember, after Genesis, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you got Joshua, then you got Judges. And that's the time when the when the earth was ruled by, by or the people, children of Israel was ruled by judges. You got Gideon, you got Deborah. I mean, there's several others. But he's talking a lot of history here, which you know I love, all right? So he's trying to tell him, listen, I have not dwelt anywhere singly. I've been moving around, and that's the way I like. All right, but now he's saying, I'm going to set Israel up, and nobody, nobody will disturb them no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more, okay? And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you um, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, uh, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ. I will be a, he, to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he com, uh, commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the striped sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So he's talking to, you know, he's telling Nathan to David, in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God spoke to Nathan, the prophet. He said, go back to David, and this is what I want you to tell him. All right, so this is what he told him, okay? All right, so I want you to kind of get a, a little bit of a, a, a background, okay, of where where we're going. So when you hear the Davidic covenant, Davidic or David covenant, um, the Lord talking to the prophet Nathan um, to David, all right? 
So now this is what he's telling him. He said, listen, I'm going to plant my people Israel. People ain't going to be able to mess with them. But as y'all know, that ain't came to pass yet. But he's talking in, remember, this is a prophet. So he's telling him what's coming. But when he said he will establish his throne forever, he's talking about Jesus Christ. Okay? So this is the Davidic um, covenant. Now, what um, the Lord was talking about when he was saying uh, that he was uh, in the tent, that he would be in the tent, um, that he has been in the tent, should I say, um, all this time, and you know what? I'm not asking you uh, to change anything. I'm not asking you um, to build me a house. I've been in the tent, so and this is where um, I'm going to stay. All right. So now let okay. So we're going to start uh, there uh, with the tent. All right. So now the tent had several things going on in it. Okay. The the first first of the thing they had was um, a gate. Okay. Now believe you me, I have plenty, plenty, plenty of scripture. Okay, so y'all get ready. All right, so the first thing we're going to talk about is uh, the gate of the tent. All right, it's just basically a regular tent. Okay, but in um, the the scriptures, uh, the Lord was specific on how He wanted um, the temple built. Okay, there. All right, let's start there with the with the temple. All right. So the first thing we're gonna talk about is how the temple was built and how it was set up. Because when we get to um Luke chapter one, it's talking about temple worship. So in order for you to 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 um talk about temple worship, you have to understand how the temple was set up. Now, remember, this is in Exodus, so I can't really say like one verse, but we're going to be in Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus because the temple duties, the way the temple was set up, everything like that is going to, is, is all set up in the, the Bible, just like the Lord told Moses, listen, this is how I want it done. This is how you're going to do it, and uh, this is how it is, all right? So now in Leviticus, and I'm telling you, you can find temple set up. We're not going to go through it all, all night because it's a lot of scripture, okay? But I'm going to tell you where to find it so that you can read it on your own. What I'm going to break down is how everything was set up, okay? So you can talk about, uh, it's called tabernacle or the tent of the meeting, okay? Tabernacle or the tent of the meeting, okay? So tabernacle instructions, um, Exodus chapter 25, okay? Exodus chapter 25, all right? So now what he says in, in Exodus chapter 25, if you drop down to verse 15, 10. no, verse 10, he's talking about... Um, have the people make art of um, acre wood and a sacred chest 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. All right, now I'm not going to go into that deep. I just want you to see um, what was all in there, okay? So now in the temple itself, you have a gate. You have a brazen altar where they do um, the temple sacrifices. You have a laver, which is a basin, B-A-S-I-N, like a place like to, to wash yourself. You have what's called a menorah, M-E-N-O-R-A-H, a menorah. Basically what that is is the lamp stand, the lamp, the lamp stand. Um, you also have a table. Twelve loaves of showbread are on the table, okay? Then you have the golden altar of incense, the Holy of Holies and the veil, and then the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the reason why this is so important is I want you to try to get a visual on 
how the temple set up so you can see when we get to Luke chapter 1 what Zacharias is dealing with, okay? All right, so now, the first thing is the gate. Now, there was only one gate by which the people could enter into the tabernacle courtyard, all right? Now, the gate itself was 30 feet wide. It was located directly in the center of the outer court on the east end. Okay, so the gate was covered by a curtain or a screen made of finely twisted linen in blue, purple, and scarlet. And look, if you go back to uh, Exodus chapter 5 and look at verse 4, it's talking about the blue, purple, and scarlet thread, okay? So now you maybe you can tie it together a little bit, okay? The one and only gate, basically, is a representation of Christ as the only way through which one can fellowship with God and worship him, all right? So to do this, one must enter in through the gate to the place where God dwells, all right? So Jesus said in uh, John chapter 10, I am, or John chapter 14, uh, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So just like we come to Jesus through that one gate, the children of Israel had one gate in around the tent, one way that they could enter in. So in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the gate. This is Jesus. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So write that down. John chapter 14, verse 6, John chapter 10, verse 9, and this is the gate of the tent, okay? All right, so also Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it, all right? So basically, the act of entering the gate to the tabernacle was significant to the Israelites, all right? So by entering that gate, you could, one could find, like, forgiveness, sin, and fellowship with God. So remember, they still had a tent back then. They still had to go through the priest. Okay, so this is where uh, Zacharias comes in in Luke chapter 1, okay? So they still had to go through the priest, all right? So the first thing that one saw upon coming through the gate was what's called the brazen altar. Brazen altar. Basically, it served as a, a reminder of man's sinfulness and his need for a blood sacrifice in order to be fellowship with God, all right? So just like Jesus um, died on the cross uh, without the uh, shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It's the same here with the temple, you guys. I want you to see how it, it contrasts one another, okay, compared how they um, compare and how they both are kind. There's a saying. It's just one is a physical place and the other is a spiritual. See it in the in the physical and in the spiritual, okay? So the brazen altar was basically a blood sacrifice, all right? Basically, one needed to repent and offer sacrifices for their sin. Those who did not repent were not entering this narrow way, all right? So let's talk about the brazen altar and um, basically the brazen altar and the temple sacrifices, okay? The brazen altar or the bronze altar or the altar of sacrifice, basically when you walk in the gate, it was situated on the right inside of the courtyard, basically upon entering the gate to the tabernacle, all right? Now, it is interesting to know that the Hebrew root uh, word for altar means to slay or slaughter. Isn't that funny? So the altar uh, root for it means to slay or slaughter, okay? The altar stood, basically, it's the, it's the Latin word alta, meaning high, 
An altar is a high place for sacrifice or slaughter. All right, sacrifice or slaughter. So the altar stood raised on a mound of earth higher than its surroundings, okay, or higher than the surrounding furniture that's, you know, all set up in there. All right, basically this is a projection of Christ, our sacrifice, high and lifted up on the cross. All right, his altar which stood, we're talking about Christ, or uh, on a hill called uh, Golgotha. Remember that? All right. So the altar was made of wood from that, that the Achaia tree. Remember that? I, I showed y'all that in the scripture. All right. And overlaid with bronze, usually symbolic of judgment on sin in the Bible. Okay. So measuring 7.5 feet on all four sides and 4.5 feet deep. Now, four horns projected from the top of the four corners of the bronze grating inside to hold the animal. So basically, you had wood all around uh, covered in bronze, and then you had the, the, uh, the four horns projected from the top to hold the animal up, okay? So the altar was a place for burning animal sacrifices. This is what the priest had to do before Christ died for our sins, okay? So this, we're talking about temple worship, all right? Temple worship. So um, it showed the Israelites that, you know, uh, the first approach of holy God was to be cleansed by the blood of an innocent creature. Oh, my God. If that is not our Jesus, he was what? What was he? He was killed for us cleansed by the blood of an innocent creature, okay, an innocent Jesus. For a sin offering, this is what had to happen. A person had to bring an animal, and it had to be a male without spot or blemish or defect from the flock or herd, <coughs> excuse me, and the priest to the priest at the tabernacle gate, all right? So let me say it again. The animal had to be a male animal or defect from a flock or herd to the priest at the tabernacle gate. All right? The scripture um, says um, he is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4. All right? So now... By laying your hand on the head of the offering, the person was identifying with the sacrifice. His sin and guilt was being moved from himself to the animal. Now, come on, y'all. Y'all know where I'm going. The priest would then slaughter the animal, sprinkle his blood, basically, in front of the veil of the holy place, burn the sacrifice, pour the rest of it at the bottom of the altar, all right? So blood is a significant agent of atonement, basically a covering for sin, all right? And then it says here, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It is blood that makes atonement for one's life. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. All right, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. How many? I better not hear him. Very good. So Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Okay, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. All right? The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. I know I said it already, but I wanted to give you the scripture. All right, so now the significance of temple sacrifices. Basically, although the blood of the sacrifices cover over the sins, basically, of the Israelites, they had to perform the sacrifices year after year. All right? So basically what that means is 
they were not free permanently of guilt, uh, um, of guilt or sin. All right. Now, with us, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, came as the ultimate and last sacrifice for mankind when He offered up His life. All right. All right. So basically, Isaiah the the prophet prophesied that you know Christ would be like a, a lamb that is led to slaughter and pierced for our transgressions. His his blood was sprinkled. Says is this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Mark chapter fourteen, uh, verse twenty four. All right. So you know that um, we are redeemed. With the precious um, uh, blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Ain't that what we talked about? The the sacrifice on the altar had to be without blemish or defect. That's the same with us. Christ is our lamb without blemish or defect. First Peter uh, chapter one verses eighteen and nineteen. All right. So I wanted you um, to be able to have scripture. Uh, references. Now, basically, horns, remember I told you there was the horns around it to hold the animal. The horns were a symbol of power and strength in biblical times, all right? So when the sacrifice was made, blood was dabbed on the horns of the altar, signifying the power of the blood to atone for sin. All right, so in the same way, there is, uh, you know, mighty power in the blood of Jesus uh, because he is the horn of our salvation. Psalms chapter 18, verse 2, Luke chapter 1, verse 69. All right, so now the animal sacrifices bore reference to the Passover lamb, basically which the Israelites slaughtered in the um, manner to save their you know, uh, basically to save themselves. But they also slaughtered the lamb um, to save their firstborn from the last last plague of God's judgment on Egypt. That's in Exodus chapter 12, okay, verses 1 through 13. So that is very um, significant, all right? Similarly, remember, the Passover lambs were eaten after they were slaughtered. Um, some of the sacrifices, Sacrificial lambs were also eaten, so they were sacrificed and eaten. So Jesus's body was sacrificed and eaten. Remember, we do that every um, first Sunday, some of us. So basically, it was no coincidence that on the night before the Passover, when Jesus was crucified, he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, "Take it, eat. This is my body." Matthew chapter twenty-six, verse twenty-six. Um, so you notice how the temple worship, <clears throat> excuse me, is now uh, the same almost. It's just in the physical sense of what Jesus did in the spiritual in the New Testament. All right. So that's what I wanted you um, to see. After the brazen altar, there is the uh, laven or the basin. What that is, it was a large bowl filled with water located halfway between the brazen altar and the holy place. Because remember, first you had to come in through the gate. Then you had to make your, your sacrifice, your confessing of the sins, slaughtering of the, uh, of the animal. Next thing you have to do is um, wash, okay? Oh, boy, that's a good one. You have to wash, all right? So now... Um, basically, um, God did not give specific uh, measurements for the laver. It was to be made, but it was to be made entirely of bronze, okay? The priests were to wash their hands and feet in it before entering the holy place, okay? Why the hands and feet? Remember, you guys, they just slaughtered an animal, and they wore sandals back in them days on their feet, um, so their feet were open to dirt. Okay, so um, even though the people were, um, you know, offering their sacrifices, the priests still could not just come before the Lord any type of way. They had to be clean. They had to wash themselves, all right? So now the lever was located um, basically in a convenient place for washing and stood as a reminder that people need cleansing before approaching God. 
All right, so the, the, the priest atoned for their sins through a sacrifice at the brazen altar, but then they cleansed themselves at the laver uh, before serving in the holy place because you have the holy place and then you have the, the holy of holies, all right, which they can only enter once a year. We'll get to that in a minute. All right, so before entering the holy place. So now basically um, what they had to do is they had to cleanse themselves um, they could, so that they would be pure and not die before a holy God. Remember, back in the in the um, Old Testament, if the priest wasn't right, uh, when they came into the presence of God, God dealt with them right then and there, and He dealt with them harshly. Death. End of subject. All right. So now, basically, just a reminder um, uh, for believers today. Uh, we are forgiven through Christ's work on the cross, but we are washed through his word. We need to be washed daily in his word to cleanse ourselves so that we can serve and minister before him. All right. What the scripture says is, is uh, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27. All right. So I just wanted you to remember that. All right. So this is the lava. Okay. So now we get to the menorah. Okay. The menorah or uh, the lamp, the lamp stand, okay, the lamp stand. So basically after washing their hands and feet at the laver, the priest would enter the holy place, all right? That was the first room in the tent of the tabernacle, okay? There were only three pieces of furniture in the holy place, the menorah, the table of showbread, and the golden altar of incense. Okay, and the golden altar of incense is where Zacharias is at uh, when we get to um, back into the New Testament. Okay, so the the menorah, M E N O R A H, also called the golden lampstand or candlestick, basically it stood at the left of the holy place. All right, basically it was hammered out of one piece of pure gold, uh, like for the laver. Um, there was uh, no specific instructions about the size of the menorah, but the fact basically that it was fashioned out of one piece of uh, pure gold, uh, it would have limited size. It wouldn't have been very big. All right, so the lampstand had a central branch from which three branches extended from each side, forming a total of seven branches. So you have three on one side, three on the other, one in the middle, which has seven, which gives you a total of, Seven and basically seven lamps holding olive oil and wick stood on top of the branches. Each branch looked branch looked like that of an almond tree, basically containing buds, uh, blossom and flowers. And the priests were instructed to keep the lamp burning continuously. All right, so the lamps have to be burning continuously. All right, in Leviticus chapter twenty four. Verses 1 through 3, the Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning continually outside the curtain of the testimony in the tent of meeting. Aaron is to tend the lamps before the Lord from evening till morning continually. So this is a continually, that's why the priest um have courses, which we're going to get to here in a minute, because the temple had to be uh, the temple had to be kept, and it had to be kept round the clock. All right, so we're going to talk about how it was kept here in a minute. So now the lampstand was the only source of light in the holy place. So without it, the priest would have been uh, walking around in the dark. All right, so the light shone upon the table of showbread okay, and the altar of incense, enabling the priest to fellowship with God and intercede on behalf of, the, of God's people. Just as the lampstand, okay, was placed in God's dwelling place so that the priest could approach God, 
Look at there. Jesus, the true light that gives light to every man, John chapter 1, verse 9, came into the world so that men could see God and not live in spiritual darkness anymore. And y'all know the famous verse, I am the light of the world. Whosoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. John chapter 8, verse 12. Okay? John chapter 8. So basically, Jesus is represented by the main branch of the lampstand. Okay? And we as believers are represented by the six branches that extend from the original branch. Having believed, we are now living as children of light, Ephesians chapter 5, all right? So I just wanted you to see um, how the temple is set up, okay? Again, two other significant symbols that can be seen, basically the fact that it was made of pure gold, not gold-plated, and had seven branches, all right? So pure gold is a representation of the deity and perfection of Jesus Christ, and seven is the number of completeness in the Bible, all right? So the believer is made complete by the perfection of of Christ, all right? Now, the table of showbread, and uh, basically what this is is it's a small table, and remember the wood and the overlay of pure gold, um, it, it's the measurements are in the uh, scripture. Basically, it stood on the right side of the holy place. So the, the menorah was on the left, the table of showbread on the right, okay? And it uh, held 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? So basically, the priest baked the bread with fine flour, and it remained on the table for the Lord for seven days. Every Sabbath, which was um, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. That's the Sabbath, okay? So every Sabbath, uh, the priest would remove it and eat it in the holy place, then put fresh bread on the table. Now, remember, it's bread with no yeast, okay? No yeast. So it's that um, flat, crunchy bread, so to speak, okay? It's not loaves of bread like we're thinking, okay? It's the, um, it it doesn't have yeast in it, okay? So um, only the the priest could eat the bread, and it could only be eaten in the holy place because it was holy. All right, showbread was also called the bread of the presence because it was all it was to be always in the Lord's presence, okay, because you're behind the uh, holy place. You're in the holy place right now, so which is in the Lord's presence, all right? So the table and the bread were a picture of God's willingness to fellowship and commune, all right, with man. All right, so basically it was like an invitation to share a meal. All right, so just like with us, you know, eating together is often, you know, uh, uh, an act of friendship or fellowship or however you want to say it. But just remember, God was willing for man to enter into his presence and fellowship with him. Um, And this invitation was always open only to the priest, though. Okay, so by now, you know, remember, the people, they come through the gate, they bring the animal, they atone for their sins, then the priest takes it from there. They go and wash themselves, and now they're in the holy place. Okay, so they're in the holy place. And if you look, when you talk about the bread, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Your forefathers ate. Um, the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. John chapter uh, 1, I'm sorry, John chapter 6, verse 35, verse 49 through 50 and 50. All right? So God so desires our fellowship that he is willing to come, you know, to earth from heaven as our bread of life to give eternal life to all of those who would partake? Can you believe there are some that say no? 
all right? So, again, at the Passover, um, Jesus, again, he, you know, took the bread and broke it, gave it to his disciples. Take and eat. I just talked about that, Matthew 26, 26, all right? So now, uh, just a reminder, that's the showbread, okay? So now the golden altar of, the golden altar of incense, Basically, don't confuse that with the brazen altar. That's something we already talked about. So now we're at the golden altar. Basically, it's set in front of the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. All right? So it, it separated, the. it's set um, in front of the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. All right? And basically what it did, it was made of the same wood overlaid with pure gold, um, four horns uh, protruded from the four or, uh, corners of the altar. Basically what God said was in Exodus chapter 30, he said, um, God commanded the priest to burn incense on the golden altar every morning and every evening the same time that the daily burnt offerings were made, all right? So if they did it at a certain time in the morning, it had to be done, you know, the same time in the evening. This was to be left burning continually throughout the day and night as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It was made of an equal part of four precious spices, and then it's got all the spices named. And if you notice, one of them is frankincense. All right, and we're going to be revisiting frankincense again, and uh, was considered holy, all right? So God commanded the Israelites not to use the same formula outside the tabernacle to make perfume for their own consumption. Otherwise, they will be cut off from their people. So this special formula can only be used inside uh, the holy place, all right? So the incense was a symbol of prayers and intercession of the people going up to God as a sweet fragrance. God wanted his dwelling to be a place where people could approach him and pray. All right? So basically, Isaiah 56, 7, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. All right? So this is what Zechariah the priest was doing when he received a visit uh, from the angel Gabriel. And this is before Mary got her visit for the angel Gabriel. Have anybody figured out who Zacharias' son is? It is John the Baptist. Yes, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. And six months before Mary got her birth announcement, Elizabeth got hers, all right, which is Zacharias' wife. He is a priest in the temple. So the reason why we're talking about temple worship is I want you to understand what Zacharias was doing when the angel of the Lord came and visited him and why. All right? So now, basically, uh, what he said is uh, another angel who had a golden Caesar came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer uh, with the prayer of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. So see, it's not just talking about it here. This is Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. So the golden altar basically is a representation of Christ, who is our intercessor before God the Father, all right? During his days on earth, remember Jesus for the believers, all right? He was uh, the high priest of, you know, he was just like the high priest of the tabernacle who bore the names of each of the Israelite tribes on his breastplate before God. And that was the clothing that only the high priest wore, okay? All right, so now just a reminder, I wanted you guys um, to see that. So the, the horns of the golden altar were sprinkled with blood from the animal sacrifice to cleanse and purify it from the sins of the Israelites. All right, so you want to remember that. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 7. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 7. All right, so now we step behind the veil. That's the holy of holy. All right, so within the holy place of the tabernacle, there was an inner room. So remember I said there was a veil 
that uh, stood in between the holy place and the holy of holies and that um, the incense was burning in front of the veil, okay? So behind this veil, the holy of holies, it's an inner room um, or the most holy place, all right? So basically, pretty much from the name, it was a sacred place. It wasn't no ordinary a place where any old body could enter, all right? Only um, the high priest could enter, all right? Only the high priest could enter one time a year. And that was on the Day of Atonement. Usually that's around the seventh month. A Jewish month, a seventh month, is anywhere between September or October, depending on how the um, seasons fall, because their actual a year starts anywhere, like their first month of the year is either March or April, depending on the moon. Um, and then the, so the seventh month would be somewhere around September, October, all right? It's not on a calendar year like us. It's a Hebrew calendar. A Hebrew calendar is different from our calendar. So the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar would be like September, October, again, depending on the moon, okay? Uh, depending on crops and things like that. I mean, there's a lot going on. All right, so basically a thick curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. All right, the curtain is known as the veil. I know some of you or a lot of you have heard about, you know, when Christ died on the cross, the veil was ripped in two. So that means no more uh, the priest can go in to the Holy of Holies. Now we can enter in to the Holy of Holies, but again, we can't come to God any old type of way, all right? So basically, um, the veil was made of linen, fine linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, all right? There were figures of cherubim or angels embroidered into it, all right? So basically, cherubim are spirits who serve God, all right? So they were in the presence of God to demonstrate his almighty power and majesty. I have, uh, I know you guys can't see it. I drew these one by one. I drew like a tent. I drew, you know, the lavin, the basin, uh, the basin, uh, 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 the uh, uh, showbread, the menorah, the, the temple, the veil. I drew pictures so if I'm pausing, it's because I'm looking at these pictures. I mean, I drew them like uh, four or five years ago, and I put a lot of really detail into it. So, um, and then I have like uh, um, scripture verses next to it, uh, and then I'm going back and forth with my notes. So I'm, that's why I keep pausing and I'm looking at it. All right, all right. So now, basically, the the word veil in Hebrew means a screen or a divider or separator that hides, all right? So basically, what was the curtain hiding? Essentially, it was shielding a holy God from a sinful man. Whoever entered into the holy of holies was entering the very presence of God, all right? As I stated before, anyone except the high priest who entered the holy of holies would die. Now, even the high priest, God's chosen mediator, through the veil and entered the sacred dwelling once a year on a prescribed day. It's called the Day of Atonement. All right? So only the high priest could enter, and only one day a year, on the Day of Atonement. Could you just imagine if we only had one day of year to ask God for forgiveness for our sins? Uh, as my uh, grandma used to say, thank God for Jesus. Because I'm telling you, mine would be so daggone piled high, I don't think I could make it to the uh, to the tent. I'm just saying. And I'm only talking about me. All right? So the picture of the veil was that of a barrier, pretty much, between man and God showing man that the holiness of God could not be messed with. Do you understand how serious that was, you guys? It was for real, for real serious. Back in the biblical times, thank God for Jesus. All right? So now God's eyes are too pure to look 
on evil, and he can tolerate no sin. That's Habakkuk, H-A-B-A-K-K-U-K, chapter 1, verse 13. All right? God's eyes are too pure to look on evil, and he can tolerate no sin. Okay? All right, now the veil was a barrier to make sure that man could not carelessly enter into God's awesome presence. All right, so even as the high priest entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he had to make some meticulous preparations. He had to wash himself. He had to put on special clothing. He had to bring burning incense to let the smoke cover his eyes from a direct view of God. Remember, God is a spirit, so it would be in the form of, you know, probably smoke. Uh, things like that, but it was, remember Moses uh, was in front of God so much his face glowed, and that's in Scripture. Um, So even as the high priest, um, he still had to, like he couldn't look at God directly. The, the, The incense stung his eyes, and he couldn't see, okay? So he had to watch himself put on special clothing, bring burning incense to let the smoke cover his eyes from a direct view of God and bring blood with him to make atonement for sin. So you got to do all of this in the Old Testament, and you couldn't even do it. It had to be the high priest. So if the high priest wasn't right, guess what? Shoot. Your sin didn't make it before a holy God. I'm just saying All right, so it says in the scripture, though, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself, committed in ignorance, in ignorance, okay? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7. So don't take my word for it. Everything I'm going over tonight is in scripture. All right, so basically the presence of God remained shielded from man behind a thick curtain during the history of Israel, the whole history of Old Testament scripture. This is what, this is how uh, God showed, was shielded from man. All right, now Jesus, uh, when he died on the cross, changed all of that. When he died, remember I told you the curtain in Jerusalem was torn in half from the top to the bottom. Only God could have carried out such an incredible feat because the veil was too high for human hands to have reached it and too thick to have torn it. If you go in there and read um, in the scripture, um, the curtain was about 60 feet in height, 30 feet in width, and four inches thick. That's a lot. 60 feet in height, 30 feet in width, and four inches thick. All right, so as the veil was torn, the Holy of Holies was exposed. All right, now God's presence is uh, accessible to all. All right, so believe you me, shocking as it uh, must have been to priests ministering in the temple the day Christ died on the cross, I bet you they had something to talk about because they probably wonder what happened. All right. So now we can boldly enter into God's presence, the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf, okay? Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says, Now, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. So basically, that's what it's talking about, all right? So the Holy of Holies is a representation of heaven itself, God's dwelling place, which we have access now through Christ, all right? So now I want you guys to remember that for next week, because next week we are going to talk about what Zacharias was doing when the angel uh, Gabriel came to him, all right? So God bless you, God keep you. Good night, everybody. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.